This is hell. <laughs> oh, I desperately need a cup of coffee, and my thermos is uh, a little jam there. Oh, you'll understand why in just a few seconds when I tell you the horrible, horrible nightmare that I'm experiencing right now. Uh. Live from the traditional lands of the Treaty of Chicago and the Potawatomi people, this is Hell, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing this morning's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how are things about you? You want me to get you one of them sippy cups, Chuck? Oh, my God. i got a God. bunch of them in my house. Dude, <laughs> really? Just for you or for your kid, too? It depends on how I'm doing. <laughs> so, high C, is that what you're putting in there? Mm. Good Lord. <sighs> This week's question from hell is, what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a book we discussed earlier, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It by designer Mike Montero. So far, the responses I've liked the most are Adam saying Andy Summers is the only member that mattered. Jack continuing on the theme of the band, the police, and not law enforcement. Gordon Sumner, you tantric wanker. Leslie's answer of happy holidays. I mean, that's kind of a nice thing to yell at a cop, right? Especially if you're holding. And Jessica's response, all cats are beautiful. I don't know why. I just like that one. Alex, let's hear some of the, uh, let's hear more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Okay, what are you yelling at the cops? What are you yelling at the cops? Eric T. says, nice horse. (laughs) Borky B., uh, after yesterday posting a string of expletives, also wrote, Epstein didn't kill himself. (laughs) Uh, Pammy H. says, suey. Alexandra C. says, (laughs) suck my dinner. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell, man? (laughs) That's actually great. I like that. Who said that again? uh, It's Alexandra C. Harold J. says, can you hurry up this line to buy legal weed? It's really slow. (laughs) Uh, Philip A. says, email Chuck for his favorite slur. (laughs) Who said that? That was uh, Philip A. Fabio L. says, maybe not all cops, but definitely you. (laughs) Bradley R. says, you're you're in a union too, you morons. (laughs) Marty P. says, I'm not your bitch. And finally, Aaron B. says, (laughs) suey. Again, suey. People love that. I walked into the uh, bar one time, and there was a cop in there, and somebody was making bacon in the back of the bar in a toaster oven. And as soon as I walked in, I said, I smell bacon. And the cop looked at me, and I said, I'm not talking about you. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you will have a chance at winning Mike Montero's Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. Tune in following our next guest to hear more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what are you yelling at the police? We'll name this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Today on This Is Hell, mass incarceration is finally being addressed, and it's being addressed with mass surveillance and mass supervision as law enforcement continues its efforts to control poor people and administer poverty. Hey, it's what you got to do when you live within capitalism. You got to keep those poor people in check. But What was meant as a way to fight terrorism, to make certain the U.S. was not attacked again as it was on 9-11, has now been turned on poor communities of color. 
We'll find out how we're being watched, being supervised, and being controlled by the state in the 21st century when we speak with sociologist Brendan McQuaid, author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion, and Mass Supervision. And of course, we're wrapping up this week with a moment of truth live from Los Angeles and our contributor Jeff Dorchin, who this week gives us a tour of the theater of trauma. Now, usually this time of year, I share Folkisev's glug recipe, my girly's Swedish grandfather's recipe for the traditional mulled wine-ish holiday drink, but I forgot to bring it this morning because for the first time ever in the history of This Is Hell, dating back to our very first broadcast on July 13th, 1996, I was not able to do part of my morning routine prior to each and every show Namely, I did not take a long, hot shower. Why? In my place this morning, there was no hot water, and it has really thrown me off this morning. Somebody, we don't know who, is apparently going into the basement of a building and turning the water heater down to its lowest temperature. And it's the second time this has happened in two weeks. We've asked everybody who lives in the building, and everyone insists that they did not touch the thermostat on the water heater. And do not call it a hot water heater, because you are not heating hot water. If it was already hot, you wouldn't need a heater. So I started my day at 6.43 this morning, barefoot on a nice cold concrete slab floor, making certain the pilot was on, and turning the heater up from its lowest setting, warm, to its highest setting, hot, problem is it takes a while to actually heat up the cold water, so no shower for me before the show for the first time ever. And it sucks. I absolutely love taking a long shower, long, hot shower, sitting on the floor of the tub, actually sitting down on the floor, having the pulsating heat pouring down upon my head. It's actually... One of the simple pleasures I enjoy to a very great extent every holiday season. My sister-in-law, or outlaw to me, and my as my girlie and I are not married, she lives in a house that has an in-law apartment attached to it as a previous owner, had their elderly mother move in with them, and they built an addition to accommodate her. As she was disabled, there's this wheelchair ramp, but more importantly, there's a massive shower, almost like one you would see in a locker room, but it's it's only for one person, big enough with enough space to allow for a person to enter with a wheelchair. So it's like 10 feet by 10 feet, and it's private. Nobody ever goes into that part of the house except for myself and my partner. And it's fantastic with incredibly high water pressure. And I swear I take at least two 40-minute showers in that paradise every day I'm visiting. And it is a paradise in the winter as they bring in all of their plants for the winter and uh, store them in the showers. So it's like a shower jungle in there. And as you can probably tell, I cannot wait to be enjoying that bliss of the holidays left to myself, thinking about absolutely nothing with hot water cascading over me. Damn it, I really miss not taking a shower before the show this week. Oh my god, I really want to get back in the shower right now. Coming up, mass incarceration is finally being addressed. But in the process of decarceration, 
We're created a state of mass surveillance and mass supervision. In a moment of truth, Jeff Torchin will Jeff Dorchin, that is, will take us to the theater of trauma. And I hate that theater. The seats are uncomfortable. There's sticky floors. The popcorn is stale. The soda or pop, depending on where you are from. Either way, it's flat. There's no cry room, so there's always some kids screaming in the seat right behind you. And we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Under capitalism, you've got to keep poor people under control, so you're going to need the police and the state to set, step up and to administer that poverty. Well, we tried mass incarceration, but apparently that pissed a lot of people off. So the new way to keep those in poverty, which are often communities of color in line, the state is now using post-9-11 anti-terror technologies to keep us all in line. Here to explain sociologist Brendan McQuaid is author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion, and Mass Supervision. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brendan. Oh, thank you for having me. You can follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore Mick Quaid. Brendan is assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine. He specializes in the critique of security and historical sociology. Brendan, you write that uh, policing and the state's broader pacification projects administer poverty, create the working class, shape the state apparatus, and continually reform the larger social uh, formation we call the United States. Now, I could ask you just about that quote for the next 25 minutes. We could parse that out and figure it out. But does policing define our culture and society? To what extent does it? Because you said if it, if it administers poverty, creates the working class, shapes the state apparatus, continually reform the larger social uh, formation we call the United States, it, does policing define our culture and society? Um, well, like, uh, I suppose it does. I mean, when I use the term policing, I'm um, not just talking about the you know armed, uniformed police that that we see and think of. I'm thinking about also the, the deeper history of the very idea of, of policing. So if you go back to the early modern period when the term police was first, was first used, it didn't mean what it meant today. It meant uh, social policy. And it really was a discussion about, you know, how can these emerging um, societies of, of Europe be, you know, wealthy and prosperous? Uh, so it really was an administrative science of, of social order, you know, concerned with uh, promoting wealth. Uh, and the main way of promoting wealth was, you know, um, forcing what we now call the working class and what used to be called the, the class of poverty uh, in, into work. So um, when I think of policing, right, it's not only just the modern police, but it's uh, social policy um, in, in general, right? So in, in that way, you know, uh, policing is, you know, is, is at the core of, of, of all politics of, of capitalist states. Policy to create a workforce. How and why did policing turn into the police? So, um, you know, ideas change over time. And, you know, in the early period, uh, the, you know, the early modern period, the 15th and 15 and 1600s, you know, capitalism wasn't aware of itself, so to speak. Um, 
But, you know, by the 18th and uh, 19th century, um, you know, capitalism is, is fully is fully developed in a, in a robust uh, system. Um, so in the early period, it was the, you know, um, the state and the sovereign were considered the theoretical center of, of social order. Uh, by the, you know, the what we call the modern period, the you know, uh, liberal philosophy had become hegemonic and people the, started not with the state and the sovereign, but with the individual and society. Uh, and in that context, in, in, you know, this liberal period with the focus on, in, on the individual, the, you know, the old police science kind of fell apart into, you know, all the different domains of social policy that we consider, that we can think of today, like public health, urban planning, uh, you know, social welfare, et cetera, et cetera. And the meaning of police contracted to, you know, the uniformed bodies of armed men that uh, enforce the law. So it was a, it was a long, a long, you know, the, the ups and downs, the shifting meanings of police is, you know, is a, is a long story. And it's really the, the story of, of the making of the modern world. You write that the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, they were the largest reorganizations of the federal government since the reforms following World War II. Since these reforms sought to improve intelligence sharing, they did not remain limited to federal agencies. Not only did state governments set up their own Homeland Security agencies and offices, they also worked with federal agencies, professional associations, and private companies to build a series of interagency intelligence centers, what is now called the National network of fusion centers. At these secure and secretive government facilities, teams of analysts do the work of intelligence fusion, mining disparate uh, data sources and fusing them together to create useful information or intelligence. In 2004, a year after DHS officially opened its doors, the department recognized 18 fusion centers. Two years later, that number increased to 37. Now there are 79 DHS recognized fusion centers. How much more surveillance do we live with today than we did before 9-11? And is there any way to know to what extent this surveillance has made us any more safe or secure from violent threats to the public here in the United States? Well, um, you know, on the first part, it's, it's actually quite difficult to, to get a, you know, just get a, uh, a full accounting of the varied surveillance systems, um, you know, that are, um, monitoring, uh, activities in, you know, within the United States to say nothing of, um, you know, outside of the United States. So the, you know, the, my book is about fusion centers and even the term fusion center is a little, uh, can be confusing. There's the 79, uh, interagency intelligence hubs recognized by DHS, and that's what the the quote you read uh, refers to. But then there's the broader uh, fusion uh, center concept. So, you know, across all domains of government, and you know, in the private sector as well, you know, it's there's been a common um, turn towards creating these, you know, data fusion hubs where you. Um, you know, get a whole bunch of intelligence analysts, give them access to every piece of data you possibly can get your hands on, give them fancy software and see if they can, you know, um, provide useful perspective on whatever, whatever the issue may be. 
So when we think of, you know, the, the back in 2010, the Government Accountability Office counted 268 federally funded field intelligence uh, operations, right? So 268 fusion center-like interagency intelligence operations um, funded by the federal government. Now, this doesn't count the, you know, crime analysis centers that are run by some county governments. It doesn't count the real-time crime analysis centers that are... Um, uh, that, that are run by some municipalities. So um, the exact number of, you know, domestic spy centers in the United States is, you know, is not something I know. And I've, you know, been studying this uh, for over a decade now. Um, the, well, I'm sorry, what was the other part of the question? Uh, I was just uh, asking you about how, uh, if we have any idea of how much more safe and secure we are oh, with these intelligence centers. Right. I mean, safety, uh, so my whole book is premised on a rejection of of common sense notions of, of safety and security. Uh, I prefer the word, you know, administration. And to me, what surveillance is about is it's all about administering uh, society. It's about, you know, managing conflicts, monitoring uh, individuals and groups, and making sure that, uh, you know, uh, social action, making sure what people do stays within acceptable parameters. So what is surveillance always about? Surveillance is always about disciplining control, and particularly it's about, you know, uh, you know, disciplining uh, people to act within acceptable roles. So that might be, you know, the we think of, you know, uh, this surveillance in the context of the criminal justice system, but we also have, uh, you know, commercial surveillance that's, you know, uh, sorting you into different market segments and, um, you know, telling uh, retailers uh, if you're, uh, you know, a, uh, someone who's going to buy a lot of stuff or someone who isn't. You're telling credit card companies and lenders if you're a good uh, investment. So, you know, surveillance is only about so security insofar as it's about the security of the system. It's about the security of property. It's about the security of, you know, the continued accumulation of capital. It's not about our safety in the sense that I think most people think about it, right? Like, do, are you free from want? <laughs> are your basic needs met? Surveillance is not, uh, you know, is not geared towards that. Surveillance is geared towards, you know, managing people uh, to socially sort them to fulfill, you know, the different roles that, um, you know, the, the system, so to speak, uh, demands of them. You write, as a result of a grant-driven federal initiative that stipulates baseline capabilities but no binding standards, no two fusion centers are alike. The variation from fusion center to fusion center can be dramatic. No binding standards. How much of a boon have fusion centers then been for the privatized surveillance industry? Because this kind of sounds like, you know, the strategic defense initiative during the Reagan era when there were no real parameters for what you could be studying and trying to make a missile that would knock another missile out of the sky. So how much of a boon have fusion centers been for the surveillance industry? Yeah, I mean, um, Homeland Security is a, is a major... Um, you know, a major industry. Um, and if we think about, you know, when, um, 
you know, the post 9-11 period was also the immediate aftermath of the uh, dot-com uh, crash, you know, the, of a financial crisis. And Homeland Security um, was kind of a, a form of, you know, uh, security Keynesianism. It was a way of pumping the system with, with uh, you know, with uh, government cash to keep keep uh to you know to get things moving again um beyond that i mean there's a huge um you know a huge we could call it a security industrial complex there's a huge collection of 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 private firms you know some of them are your old school defense contractors raytheon uh that have you know are now sur- supplying um domestic surveillance system some of them are you know, new firms like uh, Geofedia, which is one of the leaders in, you know, social media surveillance. Others are, you know, businesses that you might recognize from, you know, other um, fields that have gotten into intelligence. So every college student, every college professor knows uh, LexisNexis. What they, what they may not know is one of LexisNexis's, you know, main products in addition to selling, you know, uh, journal articles, databases of journal articles, they also are a private data broker that has, you know, databases of information on on everyone, right, uh, that are compiled together and that the, you know, police can buy uh, subscriptions to or the credit card company can buy subscriptions to. So you may not have uh, a criminal record, but a you know state police or police intelligence analyst at a fusion center could get very detailed information uh, from you uh, on you uh, you know from a database maintained by a private data broker. So how aware then are we of how much we are being surveilled? Uh, to what extent do we know how much we are always being watched or supervised? I mean, I think I think. People, you know, I've I've taught about surveillance for for a long time, and I've gotten an opportunity to to talk about these issues not just with people who are interested in them, you know, because for political or professional reasons, but you know, just talking to to students about it. And I do think there's a, a wide, you know, in this post Snowden moment, there's a there's awareness that um, the government spies on us. Right. I think uh, that's pretty broad. I think, um, you know, very few people know, you know, the exact way it works and what type of information and who has access to it and, you know, what institutional channels it flows through. That's a very complicated story. But I think most people have some awareness that, that, you know, we're spied on by the government and by the private sector. I think a lot of people don't care. I think a lot of people welcome, you know, it as safety or or convenience. Um, and that's one of the main arguments of the book is the idea that you know, um, the politics of security, you know, enlists, you know, calls people, uh, demands participation. Right? Uh, pacification isn't just. Um, you know, uh, coercion. It's also uh, soft power. It, it elicits, uh, you know, participation in the politics of security, right? Uh, you know, Homeland Security asks us to see something and say something. Uh, you know, we're asked to 
to you know report information and be you know uh, uh, diligent about about risks. So I think you know for a certain segment of the population, um, you know security politics are something that uh, people actively participate into and, and lend lend uh, legitimacy to. And they actively participate in it because they think that it must be doing them some common good. You wonder how diffusion centers inform related shifts in policy, such as the declaration of the war on terror or the recent efforts to reduce America's prison population. These questions expand the scope of analysis beyond the confines of policy refinement and civil liberties protections. Does better intelligence, does more surveillance mean fewer people in jail, fewer people falsely accused? Because that would, I would assume, would be the optimistic hope of those who participate within that system, including giving information to the police. Well, see, this is this is the kind of essential argument of the book, and, and really the 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 uh, kind of secret of fusion centers. So you know, after nine eleven, the government set up uh, under DHS set up all these interagency intelligence hubs to uh, ostensibly you know prevent prevent the next terrorist attack. But the you know politically unfortunate reality for you know the the people who who are invested in security is that, you know, terrorism is is an exceedingly remote occurrence, right? There just isn't enough terrorism to uh, justify, you know, the billions and billions and, you know, by some counts, uh, even trillions of dollars invested, you know, not just in Homeland Security, but in this one particular project that the, you know, the fusion centers that the book is about. Um, So in this context, you know, what, what do fusion centers do? They have all this money, and they have this, but they have this mandate that's impossible because the problem they're chasing, terrorism, you know, is mostly hype. And when we think about it in terms of, of actual threat, is a is a is a total non-issue, right? So so what do they do? Well, there you gave you you know you gave the police these fancy intelligence centers and all this high tech, um, you know, surveillance gear. And, you know, they're going to do what police do. They're going to apply these new tools to the traditional problems of, of law enforcement. Um, so it's in, it's in this context that, um, you know, fusion centers begin to uh, interact with, um, you know, the evolution of, of, of the American criminal legal system. Right? So we all know about mass incarceration. You have this uh, growing prison population that you know, really uh, booms in the 80s and 90s, and you get to the 2000, the the aughts, and we have this day of reckoning where we have, you know, over 2 million people incarcerated, and it's, you know, really a a humiliation for the United States, and there's people organizing around it all over the country, uh, and not just, you know, uh, radicals and liberals and, you know, religious people who are upset about the inhumanity of caging so many people, but also, you know, Republicans and, uh, you know, people on the right who are starting to question the, um, you know, the fiscal costs, the amount of resources we're investing in, in incarceration. So you get the smart on crime crew. And, uh, you know, uh, surveillance is a great way to be smart on crime because it doesn't reject 
you know, doesn't reject the the tough on crime premise of mass incarceration. You're still treating people like, you know, uh, like these heinous villains, the criminals, you know, whatever, that have done things wrong and need to be punished, but you're going to punish them in a way that is, um, you know, more efficient and cost effective. So, you know, I, the, the, the subtitle of the book is Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. I take the term mass supervision from, you know, a, a group of scholars who are focusing not just on things like probation and parole, but also on um, the way, you know, felony status is used to exclude people from housing, professional certifications, from uh, jobs. You know, uh, they use this term mass supervision to talk about the various ways um, uh, people are, are policed and managed uh, outside of the, um, the prison system itself. So the central claim of my book is, you know, we poured all this money into counterterrorism. There isn't enough terrorism to justify it. So what do these intelligence centers do? They end up uh, in this post Great Recession moment, interacting with these th this uh, tendency towards decarceration, towards reducing the prison population, and they transform, you know, entire cities into open air prisons where you know aggressive policing and ubiquitous surveillance replace incarceration, but do nothing to address the underlying uh, social problems that gave rise to mass incarceration. Open air prison. That reminds me of a conversation we had with Alfred McCoy way back in 2009, I believe it was, 2010, where he said that what was going to happen with, in particular, the use of drones overseas in the uh, war on terror, that those drones, just like any technology that is introduced during wartime, that technology is eventually, it eventually comes home and is directed at the public. And then it's usually, as he pointed out, directed at communities of color, poor communities of color first, and then it is eventually something that every community sees. Do you think the end goal of these fusion centers or the policies behind fusion centers are not just to make these poor communities of color open-air prisons, but the entire country an open-air prison? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't. I mean, what I think is the scariest thing about the system is there is no, there is no um, end goal, so to speak. There is no coherent plan. I mean, what emerges is usually, um, you know, a culmination of uh, a rather incoherent and, and conflictive, you know, politics of position taking. So, I mean. I think when we look in the long historical trend, the um, the tendency is towards towards greater control, and the you know given the the dynamics of global capitalism and the position of the United States in it, you know uh, the the U.S. bargain the the bargain that America can offer to its citizens or its subjects, so to speak, is getting you know less and less is a lesson is a, is a harsher one right um but you know i think the 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 way it's developed is not according to any any coherent coherent plan but is the you know consequences of you know uh previous decisions you know what people call path dependency 
in you know in the social sciences. So I mean, the earliest fusion center uh, is the El Paso Intelligence Center, which was in El, El El Paso, Texas. It was set up by the DEA. It was set up for cross-border you know drug uh, drug operations. You know, it's become a model. You know, I argue for this. Um, you know, ubiquitous system of surveillance that, you know, has long been disconnected from, you know, any one mission. So it's, you know, um, it's not just about uh, drugs or crime or terrorism, but it's a um, mobile administrative strategy that's used, you know, it's used by the state to manage threats, uh, but it's also used by the private sector to, you know, uh, you know, manage different types of threats. So the state might be concerned about, you know, violent crime or, uh, you know, politically threatening movements and credit card companies might be concerned about financial fraud, but all of them are using, you know, the same basic uh, method to track, manage and control people in order to kind of maintain uh, the system as such. So I do think, you know, I, you know, I don't, th- <laughs> uh, I don't think, um, you know, absent of a, a massive movement from below, I don't, I don't see, uh, this moving, you know, moving towards a more liberatory future. I mean, I do think, um, it's, you know, it's likely that mass supervision will be, um, you know, we'll, we'll touch, you know, it may start with formerly incarcerated people and, you know, uh, you know, uh, very segregated communities and we'll, we'll spread out. Um, you know, at the same time, I think it's really important to, to note that a lot of people will welcome security as protection and will, uh, you know, consent to these politics, even if, you know, even if um, they have little, little to gain, gain from it. So, you know, all the Blue Lives Matter folks, who, you know, may be very poor and may live in a census track where they're likely to, more likely to get uh, extrajudicially killed by a police officer, you know, still still will support the police for, um, you know, for complicated cultural and political reasons. So I say all this to say that, you know, I do think, you know, I believe Malcolm X said America's one large, you know, one great prison. Uh, I don't think that's changed. But, you know, uh, everyone's prison is a, is a little different, so to speak. So you're saying that it might be for drugs, to fight crime, to fight terror, to fight fraud. We were talking about it, how it's to administer the poor. And you mentioned the possibility of political movements. How are in, uh, fusion centers involved in political policing? Do fusion centers criminalize dissent or is that not as much of a role as, say, administering the poor? Well, um, you know, uh, fusion centers are involved in political policing, and they're monitoring pretty much every social movement you can imagine, and not just ones on the left, right? I mean, they are they are monitoring, you know, they monitored Occupy, they monitored Standing Rock, you know, they're tracking anarchists, um, radical environmentalists you know, uh, religious ladies, uh, religious peaceniks opposed to war, uh, but they're also, you know, going after, you know, the, the, the far right. 
um, you know, militias, sovereign citizens, um, movements of, of along those lines. Um, what I do think is important in one of my kind of uh, hobby horses is, um, you know, uh, the dynamics of political policing have changed a lot from the Cointelpro period. So Cointelpro was the notorious FBI counterintelligence program that was run by J. Edgar Hoover, you know, in a very, you know, he had put a very, um, uh, had very strong personal control over the program. It was very aggressive. He, you know, wanted the FBI to actively subvert uh, movements. So, you know, under Cointelpro, the FBI would send informants in and just stir up trouble and, uh, you know, get people who don't like each other fighting and send fake communications to strain relations between different groups. And in extreme cases, you know, such as the, the case of Fred Hampton, you know, uh, kill people. Um, now, what we're seeing under DHS is not as coordinated or as aggressive as the Cointelpro period. What we have is is ubiquitous monitoring, right? Everyone, you know, protest activity is being monitored, uh, being reported on. But there's little, um, little active counter subversion that's being centrally directed by the federal government. What we have instead of, you know, Cointelpro, J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, personally directed private war, what we have is a much more complicated system. So it's not just the DHS fusion centers, it's also the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces, you know, it's, it's other uh, uh, institutional locations that, you know, um, I won't get into the details of, but we have this complicated web, you know, some like the Joint Terrorism Task Force, they run more vertically, others like the fusion centers run more horizontally, you have intelligence analysts in different parts of government putting out reports saying, you know, uh, about environmental extremists and creating the, you know, creating the justification to to monitor these uh, these groups, you know, and then those get those reports get disseminated through fusion centers and through other similar intelligence networks to state and local cops to the private sector, who then may may, um, you know, may decide to take their own action. So we have, there's a lot of documents now in the public record about the policing of Occupy and the policing of Standing Rock, and my book goes into, into great detail on those episodes. And what's, I think, actually very insidious is it's really unclear when you look at the policing of Occupy, for example, like who made, who made the call to, uh, you know, uh, clear out the, the encampments. Was it DHS? Was it the state or municipal police? Was it the FBI? Was it these private organizations, the Police Executive Research Forum, the National Conference of, of Mayors? You know, when the details of Cointelpro were exposed, the, the way the program worked was clear. Hoover was in charge, and he demanded aggressive action from all his special officers in charge. When you look at the, you know, Occupy documents or the Standing Rock documents, that clarity isn't there. What we see is a rather, you know, a bewilderingly complicated network of state and private actors who are, you know, circling around this political activity, uh, but 
you know, it's unclear who's the who's the 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 most powerful you know actor behind the operation. Who's the one really calling the shots? And I think this makes it this makes this is a much harder political climate. When Cointelpro was expo- exposed, it created this instant legitimacy crisis for the FBI. You know, now a you know, and a particular incident of political policing may be exposed and, you know, you can quarantine the blame to a few bad apples. So, you know, when the Standing Rock stuff was reported, the private contractor that uh, Energy Transfer Partners hired, Tiger Swan, you know, they, they took most of the heat. Uh, but, you know, the the role of the North Dakota, you know, state uh, intelligence center, North Dakota's fusion center was kind of quietly brushed under the rug. Um, so I say all this because, you know, fusion centers are involved in political policing. Uh, it's not in the way that activists often imagine, but that doesn't mean it's not insignificant or it's not a threat. It may actually be more subtle and more insidious than, than we might think, you know, if we, you know, look to the example of Cointelpro. And now you know why our show is called This Is Hell. Uh, Brendan, uh, you uh, go to a, an, an intelligence fusion center uh, known as The Rock in Camden, New Jersey. Camden, New Jersey, a deindustrialized city that has high crime. Are industrialized cities then being targeted with a new form of, I don't know, automated authoritarianism? Or is that an unfair label to give what is happening in deindustrialized cities with mass supervision via intelligence fusion centers? Is, is the response to the failures of neoliberalism or late capitalism or the, the decline in economic growth, is the response not jobs for industrialized cities in the Rust Belt, but supervision? Are lives becoming more, uh, as they become more precarious under late capitalism, wherever you want to call this area, do they become increasingly policed? Yeah, I mean, that's... Um, well, I guess yes and no. I mean, yes, things are becoming increasingly police, but it's just, you know, if we go back to the opening discussion in this interview about the meaning of police power, it's just, uh, you know, a different, a different kind of policing. So, you know, we used to have the soft social police used to be more pronounced. You know, it used to be a... Uh, varied administrative mechanisms that could, you know, uh, manage and mold uh, the population and uh, shape the dynamics of society in ways that were, you know, more consensual. So even if you just look at, you know, Northern European countries with their robust welfare states, you know, um, you know, from the perspective of America, they might look revolutionary, but, you know, these states are not anti-capitalist in any real sense and they just you know they their cops are just kinder and gentler and their social workers and their you know um generous social welfare policies but they're geared towards the same set of circumstances they're geared towards you know uh administering the population and managing the conditions for capital accumulation now in the united states you know we have a very different history and a different position in the world economy. And what I think's you know really been the story since the 1970s is you know a move towards you know more punitive forms of of social control here. So one of the people that I um, one of the scholars that I uh, you know uh, build on uh, 
quite extensively is this uh, Greek Marxist named Nico Palantzis. And he wrote in the 70s about authoritarian statism. And his argument was basically that the, you know, the internationalization of production and the rise of global finance made it um, very difficult for the state to, um, you know, put, put the power of capital over the state. And instead of your classic, you know, welfare state where you have a compromise between labor and capital in the state, in this new order, you have the, you know, capital kind of writing its own ticket on its own terms and not only selling, you know, selling, selling out labor, but also kind of, um, you know, uh, leaving the national state. So in this context, you know, what, what, do, what do governments do? They turn to, you know, they can't control capital. Uh, they'll just, you know, move to different economies. Uh, and if they can't control capital, then they can't offer workers this generous package, you know, of uh, the soft social police. So they rely on more authoritarian forms of control. So in the beginning, this was mass incarceration. This is Ruth Wilson Gilmore's argument that mass incarceration is just a way of warehousing, you know, workers who weren't needed in a post-industrial, high-tech, service-based economy. So we warehouse them. I build on Gilmore to say, well, now it's gotten even worse, and we can't afford to warehouse them in prisons anymore. So we're warehousing them you know, in their own communities and replacing, you know, prison, prison guards with, you know, high tech cops and ubiquitous surveillance. I think you're very right in, you know, in that it's automated. So to give the example of, you know, Camden, New Jersey. Uh, so Camden isn't where The Rock is located. The Rock is located in East Ewing Township, but Camden has their own, you know, mini fusion center called the, uh, I think it's called the RT Talk. Uh, and one of the things they do in Camden, you know, Camden has a quarter of a billion dollars of heroin moving moving through it, uh, according according to one report, a quarter of a billion dollars of heroin moving through it, you know, each each year. So you can imagine this type of criminalized commerce, you know, it happens with a great amount of you know violence, right? Uh, the the way the police uh, manage this, you know, um, in part is through automated you know, automated surveillance. And it's not just managing the uh, supply side, so to speak. So they have automated license plate readers all over Camden. And, you know, if you're, if you have a car that's, you know, registered in the nice, nice part of Philadelphia nearby, and you're driving through Camden trying to score some heroin, and you go past one of these automated license plate readers, it'll automatically, you know, uh, note that you've been there, and then it will, They'll send a letter to you saying, you know, your car was noted on this street in Camden. This is where there is, um, you know, open air drug markets. Um, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be there. So that's you know that's just one seemingly benign way that um, you know we have this you know automated authoritarian statism. Um, you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to go away, and I think it's going to be you know, become, you know, more integrated, particularly as new systems come online, like facial recognition uh, surveillance, which promises to kind of link your data double more closely with your person. So, you know, when you're picked up on a, 
CCTV camera in a downtown somewhere with automated facial recognition that will say, oh, this is John Doe. And then it will, you know, can be, uh, you know, cross-checked with the, the massive amount of data, you know, on you. Um, you know, and all of this is, is being used to um, manage and monitor people. And uh, they're going to find, you know, uh, you know, new... Uh, you know, new ways to do so as, you know, more systems develop and they're better integrated and, uh, you know, the kinks are ironed out. You write that when police executives evoke the language of the war on crime, they are unconsciously drawing upon deep histories of capitalist order, making that color their perception of what the problems are and orient their action with a likely range of responses. Can capitalism only be maintained through some kind of war on the public? Does that make that any different from any other political economic systems? Aren't all systems sustained through force? Well, I mean, in some ways, all systems are uh, sustained through force. But, um, you know, in my book, um, in the, the theoretical project that the book's aligned to, are trying to make a particular reading of capitalism. So I, you know, on your show in the past with various scholars, you've talked about uh, primitive accumulation, right? Which is the idea that, um, you know, capitalism didn't start with, there wasn't all these workers around saying, gee, I wish I had a job, I have nothing to do, right? Capitalism needed to destroy feudal and other pre-capitalist societies and uproot people from the land and uh, force them to work. You know, um, so this idea of pacification, which is central to the book, is is essentially a you know a revision of this idea of, of primitive accumulation, right? So the idea is that prim- this is not a foundational process. This didn't happen once, but it happens continually. Uh, so capitalism, you know, is an order of insecurity, right? All that is solid melts into air, and this order of insecurity demands a politics of security. Um, you know, so, you know, I think capitalism is, because it is premised on endless and infinite change, right, the endless accumulation of capital, right, it's, it, it, you know, capitalism builds something and then it destroys it, you know, creative destruction. This makes, I think, security uniquely important. I mean, all political orders are, all political systems are organized around, you know, involve coercion in some way. But I think there's a very different dynamic of coercion in, you know, pre-capitalist societies where, you know, for most most of the population, the name of the game was subsistence, right? It's like we need to produce enough that we need to survive. There isn't this, uh, you know, insane focus on, you know, accumulating more and more and more and more and more and doing whatever you can, destroying whatever you need to, changing everything about your life in order to advance that goal. So, you know, this is, you know, this is the, this imperative to accumulate is what makes capitalism so dynamic, right? It's the reason why we have the technology we have and why, you know, in the last 200 years, uh, human societies have advanced so rapidly. But it's also the reason why, you know, why we have, you know, uncounted billions in in the world today, you know, living in in the most abject poverty, right? Because capitalism is is predicated, you know, on, 
not just change, but the, uh, you know, uh, uh, miseration, right? Um, so I think this makes security, you know, much more important to capitalism than uh, other other social systems, right? In capitalism, security is formalized, and it's the the goal of all these different, you know, state apparatuses, and not just the police and the military, but you know, all of social policy is all about administering insecurity and keeping it from, you know, destroying the system. Whereas in previous social systems, a lot of, you know, a lot of that stuff was left to, to local communities to sort out themselves, right? The question of security, how are people going to eat? How are we going to deal with, you know, breaches of, uh, of conduct? You know, that was not a formal matter of the state. It was, you know, left to local authorities to sort out on their own terms. Now, that wasn't necessarily better or worse, but it was a very important difference. And I do think, you know, I do think that's uh, what's distinct about capitalism because of this um, infinite and endless change, this infinite desire to accumulate private property. It creates a uniquely unstable and uniquely conflictive type of society that demands you know, a aggressive intervention of the state, constant pacification, you know, to prevent, uh, prevent it from, you know, tearing itself apart. So we have had lots of guests on the show and I've talked to listeners off the air and they always have been curious, especially those who are from Europe. They've always been really curious as to the lack of class politics here in the United States. Is policing and pacification about making certain there are no class politics, that there is no class war? Is the lack of class politics in the states a sign that policing has been incredibly effective in the states, that we have been pacified by policing? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we have been pacified by policing, but in in a particular way, you know. um, What I think is very important about the United States is, you know, is, uh, you know, is racialization. So in in Europe, you know, the color line divided the colony from the metropole, you know, and it it um, you know, at, at least you know, until relatively recently in historical terms, you know, it 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 meant that in European countries, you know, there wasn't uh the the main polarization was on question of class. It was, you know, workers against capitalists. It wasn't uh, complicated by, you know, this internal colony of uh, racially devalued labor, right? In the United States, it's entirely different. The color line runs through the country. So, you know, in the United States, one of the primary means of pacification was, you know, was whiteness. So if you look at, you know, historically, the Germans became white, the Irish became white, you know, in part by becoming cops and participating in the violent, you know, subjugation of, you know, mostly African Americans, but, you know, the, the, the racial other in general. Um, so I think this is what makes, you know, what makes, uh, you know, uh, you know, race is a, is a cross-class identity. It's an alternative form of subjectivity, you know, where you view, 
you view your your white boss as your member of a white race and like you and not your objective class enemy that you need to you know crush in order to live decently um so I think this goes a long way to explaining, you know, why the United States has a weaker welfare state than Europe and why the United States has such a, you know, brutal criminal legal system and why, you know, American police to the best we know kill between 800 and 1100 people per year, um, you know, and no other country in the world can even come close. Right. And here I'll note, you know, whether it's the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, data, the independent counts from The Guardian in The Washington Post. When we look at these, this data on police-involved killings, it's not, as, it's not as stark as we might think. Right. Uh, so, you know, racial minorities are, are killed at greater rates. But still, when we look at the raw numbers, 40 to 50 percent of people killed by cops in America are white. The fact that this doesn't register as a political concern, uh, you know, that it's Black Lives Matter, but not, um, you know, not a, that, that police violence isn't considered a, a universal issue, right, I think speaks to the deep way that racialization has, is inter- intertwined with the politics of pacification, you know, to be white is to be, you know, even if, even if it's incorrect, is to be, you know, uh, part of society, to be protected from police violence, to be someone whose safety is, is uh, you know, valued by the state. Um, so I think this is, you know, it's the intertwining of, of racial formation, uh, class formation, you know, that uh, I think makes... American politics unique and makes America, you know, particularly brutal in comparison to, say, you know, uh, Northern Europe. We have a sequence sociologist, Brendan McQuaid, author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence, Fusion, and Mass Supervision. Follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. Brendan, as you apparently know, because you listen to this show, our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I already had one pre-written for you, but in your response just now, I thought of a really a lot more hellish question, and I'm even going to feel horrible asking it to you. All right, here we go. So, would it be more descriptive, more accurate, even more effective, then, if Black Lives Matter was Poor Lives Matter? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't quite say that. I mean, I do think there's, there's a reason why Black Lives Matter became, uh, you know, emerged the way it did. You know, um, so in my book, I'm trying to thread a a very tight needle, I suppose. You know, on the one hand, I, you know, I want to, I want to assert the importance of class, you know, uh, you know, that class is, is, you know, it's a, it's a capitalist system. It may also be a white supremacist system, but it's a, it's a capitalist one, right? And class is, um... You know, I don't want to say the primary contradiction, but it is a uh, a central one that structures, you know, all others, right? Um, so there's a reason why, um, you know, there's a reason why 
black people are killed and incarcerated at rates that far exceed white people. And there's a reason why, why politically, um, why politically Black Lives Matter emerged the way it did. And it wasn't part of a more, you know, general campaign against, against police violence, poor lives matter or something along those lines. Uh, what I, you know, what I'm trying to do with this book and with, you know, my uh, political work and other research that's flowing out of it is really try to make, uh, and this comes out in the end of the book, I hope, is really try to make the point that like abolition, the, the abolition of state violence, the kind of dismantling of the varied systems that operate to like coercively regulate human subjectivities, that, you know, the, the abolition is an essential part of the transition towards towards uh, socialism, right? We don't, we don't, um, we can't arrive at a more just economy without dealing with the, you know, uh, quote-unquote political mechanisms that have been created to, you know, administer administer the population. Um, so there's a, there's a lot more that, you know, I could, I could say on, on this particular point, but I guess, um, you know, uh, what I would say is that, um, yeah, that the, that we need to take very seriously, you know, the intertwining of race and class and think about how those, you know, shaped, um, shaped the uniquely brutal nature of the American state and how we need to kind of unmake those systems to, you know, to build a more uh, equal economy, right? So uh, I hope in the book, you know, we can show, I kind of end the book making the argument that Medicare for all, like, is an abolitionist reform and it needs to be understood as such. Uh, abolition is not a distraction from socialism. You know, it's not an either or. But they're kind of uh, mutually supporting struggles that are, you know, connected to the same problematic. And it's that core problematic of capitalism, right? Capitalism is a society predicated on endless change, on, on the production of insecurity. It demands a politics of security. You can't deal with economic issues, right, the problems of security without addressing the security system that seeks to, you know, force us into to be productive workers and, you know, uh, consumers, you know, uh, without changing the, the fundamental the politics. Brendan, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. And last week, we named our 15 favorite books to be featured on the show in 2019. And the people who are always on the next week get screwed from being on that list. But I got to tell you, this book really made me rethinking, rethink policing, rethink uh, supervision, surveillance, pacification. This is really uh, fantastic work. You should be very proud of this book. It really is fantastic. And our, and our listeners should definitely check out your book. Again, the title is Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion, and Mass Supervision. You would have definitely made the list had I had you on a little bit earlier in the year. So I apologize. Follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great fun. I love the show. All right. Thank you very much, Brendan. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. 
This is Hell. Coming up, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This time, Jeff will take us to the theater of trauma, a dank, musty space with poor lighting and a horrible sound system. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You still have a chance to win the prize for the best answer to this week's question from hell, a book we discussed earlier on the show, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do for it to Fix It by designer Mike Montero. Alex, let's hear more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. All right, I got two more. I also got Jeffy on the line, and I got to get out of here before Miss Deanne gets mad at me yeah. picking my kid up late. Via Twitter, Rock Taster says, my effing reindeer is not drunk, Ossifer, and he's driving. <laughs> and then via Instagram, eat farts. <laughs> Any guess who said eat farts? I'm going to guess that's eat farts 69. It's or- our pal, eat farts 69. Or... It's going to be his wife. That's always one or the other. They really like to tell us to eat farts. All right, let me skip all the listener uh, feedback because we don't have time for that. Coming up, like I said, Jeff Dorton is going to deliver a moment of truth, and we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from Helen announce who has won Mike Montero's book, which we featured earlier on this week's show, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World, and What We Can Do to Fix It. This is not the media. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, I know you have happy on the line. Theater of Trauma. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Sunday night, I sat around with a group of people discussing the issues of the day. The discussion meandered from the humane welfare capitalism of Finland to renters' rights in Los Angeles, and from there to confirmation bias and the possibility of changing people's minds. There is a sad fact and that is that you can't change people's minds with facts. Not when the facts contradict their life-defining biases. Not when it would mean changing an overall attitude that would redefine those human beings as another kind of human being. You can't confront me with facts that would change me into a right-wing Christian any more than you could present Tucker Carlson with facts that would transform him into a decent man. If you tell a state representative of Ohio that reimplanting an ectopic pregnancy into a uterus is medically impossible and could be dangerous to the bearer of said uterus, he will respond, and I paraphrase, Look, I'm not a doctor. I don't even know what an ectopic pregnancy is. My medical research is done by sarcastic anti-abortion activists. He will not alter the asinine legislative bill he wrote. He'll stick to his guns, as will his medical viziers in the anti-abortion movement, regardless of what obstetricians tell them. How do we get people to change their minds? First, we must be arrogant enough to assert that we are the ones who know how the minds of these recalcitrant baboons ought to be changed. When it comes to the climate crisis, 
I'm firmly on the side of those who believe we have to do something drastic to save the world. I have no qualms about trying to change the minds of those who think the climate crisis is a hoax or an exaggeration, or even those who think our carbon output just needs to be brought to zero. No, that's not enough. We need to clean up our water and air and stop wars, and if it took 5 billion individual lobotomies to achieve consensus on that, I would be for it. If it only were so simple. Seeing how information, brain surgery, and even bitch slapping will change someone's mind, what will? Think of the great mind changes and changes of heart throughout history. What transformed Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul? What changed Ebenezer Scrooge into a Christmas-loving giver of gifts? What turned Christopher Hitchens from a left-wing alcoholic blowhard into a right-wing alcoholic blowhard? Traumatic experiences. Experiences that impressed these men to their very core. Paul was struck blind by a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Scrooge was visited by ghosts and shown his own grave. And Hitchens saw hijackers fly airliners into the two tallest towers of the World Trade Center out of a nightmarishly blue sky, killing 3,000 people horrifically. You might say that the World Trade Center massacres were an act of guerrilla theater, if you were perverse. And guess what? I am. When avant-garde theater artist Antonin Artaud proposed the theater of cruelty, it was meant to jolt people out of their stupefied state of complacency with its challenging images, breathtaking physicality, and shocking subversion of expectations. It would create full, unforgettable experiences going beyond language. It would free the joy and beauty within each person that society had squelched. Artaud found an exhibition of Balinese theater to be so different from theater in the European tradition that it made an indelible impression on him. But Artaud was a passionately crazy artist. Those were the kinds of things that moved him. Most people need something more visceral to transfigure their souls than an alternative to Aristotelian drama. When George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were preparing their response to the 9-11 massacre, it might have behooved them to think of the narrative they were building on. Fascistic Islam came crashing murderously out of the sky. The logical thing to happen would be for the victimized superpower to come crashing out of the fascistic Islamic skies in retaliation. Not only was it the expected consequence, it was not even that unusual for the USA to come crashing murderously out of someone's sky. Why did Bush and Cheney not see that it would have been miraculously shocking to break that chain of expectation? At the time, I called the counter-massacre against Al-Qaeda via the Taliban a failure of moral imagination. If we'd sought not merely to punish and thereby continue the psychological cycle of making new enemies by massacring the old, but to shock the Islamo-fascist world out of their complacent oppression of, of women and dissent and hatred of all things Western, we would have done something different. We have responded to Al-Qaeda's presentation of guerrilla theater of trauma with our own theatrical offering. What we were guilty of wasn't a failure of moral imagination, but of theatrical imagination. What if we'd come crashing out of the sky in some radically surprising way? Imagine you're living in Kabul 
awaiting wrathful retribution as the armies of the West are massing on your border. But then suddenly, a giant, beautiful, red, white, and blue, star-spangled winged horse with the face of the Statue of Liberty descends from heaven in a blaze of celestial light, singing Purple Rain and giving out Tootsie Rolls and fun-sized Milky Way bars. All the billions we've sunk in that country, we could easily have pulled that off. Do you doubt the vision would be traumatic? Do you doubt it would also change the minds of millions about the nature of the power, restraint, and benevolence of the USA? Well, all right, you come up with something then. At least mine is more constructive than bombing. Wait, how about a white whale? And out of its awesomely vast mouth would march angelic figures onto an impressively stark landscape, performing in unison, in sign language, the Robert Frost poem, Stopping by Woods, to the austere drone of a single note from a bowed cello. Okay, fine, doesn't matter to me. It's all blood and treasure under the bridge anyway. The question, as Jesse Jackson said on SNL, is moot. It's the people who deny the carbon cycle disaster we really need to change anyway. So, how about this? We warm the ice sheets in both the Arctic and Antarctic, so they melt and calve icebergs the size of Florida. I'm sure we can scrape together the funding to accomplish these great scenic miracles. Imagine the trauma of watching your children drown under a 30-foot rise in sea level or of millions starving as arable land turns to desert and the last of our food supplies exhausted. Can we really afford such extravagant theatrics? Those and more, clearly. The oligarchs are practically begging to fund this particular production with its awe-inspiring spectacles. Think they'll be traumatic enough to get people on board? Can they change the doubters' minds? Don't think of drowning and starvation as contradictory facts, challenging the notion that the climate crisis is mere propaganda meant to frighten us out of wasteful economic metastasis. Think of them as theatrical devices in a play to catch the conscience of the people. A spectacle to end the spectacle. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, uh, we're up against the clock, but I just want to say real quick to you that I hope you enjoy celebrating the true meaning of Christmas over the holidays, and that would be the solstice. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate that. Sweet. I'm going to celebrate it by sleeping all day. Oh, enjoy yourself. You sound a little under the weather, my friend. Yeah, I'm just getting over a cold. I can't catch it through the phone, can I? Uh, not unless I do something really weird. Okay. All right, stay beautiful, my friend. I'll talk to you real soon. All right, you too. Bye-bye. The kind of stuff that starts fights at your holiday dinner table. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Burtz. Producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, do we have any more of our listeners' answers to the question from Hell, which is, what are you yelling at the police? No, that's it. All right, so you tell me. Not, you know what? I'm just going to pick one. I, I mean, I really like Eat Farts 69 telling us that he's yelling Eat Farts at the cops. Uh, but just for, I don't know, my own self-interest, I think the best answer to this week's question from hell was Phillips saying that what he's yelling at cops is Chuck's favorite term for cops. Uh, you have just, Philip, you have just one 
Mike Montero's book, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. Email us your mailing address at chuck at thisishell.com or you can message it to us at Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio and we will send Mike's book to you. My answer to the question from Elle is, what are you yelling at police? Uh, are you kidding me? I try not to yell at anyone who open carries and wears a militaristic uniform, especially when they have a license to kill. We hope to see you all tonight at our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party happening tonight, Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until somebody does something dumb. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday office party? Then make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Invite all your coworkers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everybody at your office? Then bring the cool kids to our holiday office party. Again, it's happening tonight, and if you need a last-minute gift, we'll also have all of our This Is Hell merchandise available. That's tonight. Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until uh, who the hell knows. At Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And this week I will be giving our sharing uh, the festive glug recipe that we use every year for our own family and friends party. We'll be sharing that with you on Patreon. Uh, Here's our schedule over the holidays. If you do want to keep listening to This Is Hell, Live This Is Hell, New This Is Hell, a new monologue for me and a classic interview, sign up at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll be doing a new Patreon live stream on Friday, December 20th. Friday, December 27th, and again on Friday, uh, Friday, January 3rd. And then we are going to be back here with a live streaming This Is Hell starting on January 6th. And don't forget, on New Year's Day, we will be playing all of our interviews featuring our 15 favorite books to be discussed on This Is Hell in 2019. And we'll be playing all of them back to back to back to back to back 15 times on New Year's Day at thisishell.com. Think of it as your New Year's Hangover Cure. Stay up to date by following us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. I want to thank Jeff Dorchin, Alex Jerry, Jonah Tomko-Smith, Ronaldo Magaldi, our guests this week, Brendan McQuaid, Mike Montero, and uh, let's see who else, uh, Matt Seaton and Jacob Hamburger for being on this week's show. And this week's Hangover Cure is the ultimate cure developed by scientists uh, that you can make yourself. And all you have to do to find out what that is is go back to earlier shows from this week, and you can find that there. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, thanks to everybody who has contributed to the show in 2019. There is only one way that you can get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.